Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Also, all advertisements and podcast sponsors are strictly for informational purposes only and not endorsements of any products or services. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast, and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. I wanted to give a quick shout out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash eToro reaction or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm thrilled to have on Alex Larson, who's on the investments team at Blockchain Capital. Alex, how's it going? Hey Tom, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So I know we chatted offline. You said that most of your time and, and intellectual interest is kind of spent on the DeFi space. So I'm definitely kind of interested to hit on hit on that. But before we dive in, I mean, what drove you to kind of be most interested in DeFi here? Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with with where I was coming from before I joined the industry. So for a little bit of background, I, I'm an engineer by academic background. After uh, university, I spent some time doing mergers and acquisitions and advisory work on Wall Street as an investment banker at Guggenheim Partners. I was doing that for a while. And at the same time, I was sort of cautiously and part-time studying the crypto markets. And I realized that capital markets were at the very early stages of being changed forever by crypto, which ended up getting me hooked on it. So I started researching it on my nights and weekends and, and writing about it, just trying to flush out my own thoughts and trying to understand Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and some of the other things. And this was probably late 2016, or early 2017. And I tried to do things like valuation models on them, probably failing miserably on that. But then I ended up having, I think, as is pretty common in the space, a big enough itch to transition from nights and weekends to going into the industry full time. And so after a while of, of doing work and going to meetups in New York and stuff, I ended up meeting the guys at, at Blockchain Capital actually through Twitter. And I was really impressed with their knowledge and experience in the space and, and their views and investment approach broadly. And after talking to them for a bit, it was clear that I would be a good fit on their team. So I joined their investment team a bit under two years ago. And so I think that my, my background in, in capital markets and financial services probably has a bit to do with why DeFi has struck a chord with me in general. I would say that it's not the only area that I'm very bullish or, or interested in. I think I would be remiss not to mention Bitcoin as probably the thing that I have the single most faith in in the industry and the, the strongest conviction in and, and think the story around it is really the most solidified. But but since we are an early stage venture capital firm, we do look at things that aren't as mature yet. And for me, a lot of that time is spent on the DeFi space. 
So every time I get somebody from Wall Street, because I also spend time there, I, I joke with them that we traded right. a yeah we traded an eight to six job for a job that's twenty four hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, so Alex, I mean, you guys probably see you guys are one of the largest funds, right? You guys see a lot of the probably the best and most innovative deals kind of first. How do you handle? looking at these, like all these potential DeFi projects, like what's your internal model for kind of processing and screening? What are some things that if you look at a new DeFi project, you're you're like, absolutely not. Or you're like, hey, I'm really interested in this. Like, what, what should you, what should founders be aware of when, when something hits your desk? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it is, is tough to put a strict framework around. I mean, most, I think most of early stage investing comes down to, comes down to the founding team. And, you know, a lot of times the idea when your pre-product, pre-revenue changes substantially until you find product market fit and, and have a model that you can scale. So I, I, I'm hesitant to put a, a framework exactly on what I'm looking for. I definitely have areas that are particularly interesting to me and that I think there's a lot of potential for for large businesses to be built in them within financial services. And so whenever something hits our our inboxes through any any channel really, whether it's a deck or or an inbound introduction that is in those areas, I definitely take a close look, but it it comes down to intangibles and and things that are hard to to yeah, put a a strict framework around. Yeah, no, I agree. The team is huge and the intangibles are tough. So when we're thinking about DeFi, some of the devil's advocates in the space or people that aren't huge on DeFi kind of just say, hey, we're just passing money around back and forth within the same kind of ecosystem and we're not really getting mainstream people involved. Do you kind of feel the same way about DeFi or do you think we'll eventually get to a point when my mom and dad are actually using it? Yeah, I do feel that way. I think it's you that that's just sort of a... That's the truth about about the state of the industry right now. And I think it speaks to how nascent a lot of these technologies are. I mean, with DeFi specifically, we just it's been in the last two years really that we've had meaningful applications launch in that space. And so when you combine that with the fact that this technology stack is so new itself, I mean Ethereum is is only a couple of years old at this stage. And um I, I really don't think that you can expect there to be any semblance of mainstream adoption at this stage. I mean, it's very similar to the early days of the internet where a lot of the infrastructure and the the tooling that, that let developers build performant applications really hadn't been built out yet. And the base layer chains themselves right now, I mean, at least on the smart contract side, um, are very much in what we'll probably consider a, a version one. For now, and and it'll probably be years until we get significant improvements there that that boil up to the application layer. So I think that what we see with with DeFi right now is a lot of experiments in mechanism design and attempts to get a model right that that might work and testing it out at a small scale with the users that are trying out crypto products every single day. So sort of, I, I guess it's just a product of that is that that we have sort of this test bed that that is um, sort of internal to crypto 
And that probably doesn't extend to mainstream users until the user experience is significantly improved. No, that's fair. And the other thing, though, is, I mean, a lot of people in crypto are even hesitant to get on the DeFi bandwagon, right? A lot of people think it's just testing and experiments and trials. But I feel like what you're saying is that these are primitives that are going to be used in a viral way once we fix the UX. Do you think that the crypto space itself is warming up to DeFi in general? Because I know there was a lot of tribalism between chains and there kind of still is that basically knock DeFi just because the bulk of it's built on Ethereum. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the criticisms of DeFi are very fair. I see them most from the Bitcoin community and they have a general opposition to anything that they would consider not completely decentralized. And I think that most of the DeFi space today probably fits into that camp. So it's an understandable reaction. I do think that that it's a very different goal in DeFi than it is in Bitcoin. I mean, the, the goal of Bitcoin is to create the hardest form of money um, that, that's ever been invented and then to allow everyone in the world to have access to that. Um, and in DeFi, I think the, the money aspect is sort of an, an input assumption. And now it's, well, what else, what other types of, of rule sets could we create, you know, a high sense of integrity assurance around? And then how could we export that out to have similar levels of access as, as something like Bitcoin? So I think that that it's okay right now that that everything isn't fully decentralized because the just the nature of these mechanisms they they need to be ironed out. We need to experiment rapidly. We need to figure out what works, what doesn't, what might have a future in a in a more decentralized way, um, and then we can take it from there. So it's a it's a fair criticism. I think that over time we're going to figure out some things that work, and then the the points of failure that exist today or the points of centralization will over time, hopefully um, become less of an issue. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, to be honest, a lot of it, a lot of these DeFi apps aren't really completely decentralized, right? Like there's always, when every time I look at a project, if you dig deep enough, there is kind of a point of centralization somewhere, but on the flip side, it's kind of hard to bootstrap and launch a viral network that's secure if the team doesn't have some control over it kind of in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the rule sets that people are trying to encode in smart contracts are quite complicated in some instances. I mean, in particular, when when you're looking at things that require outside information, it's very non-trivial to figure out a secure way to get information from out from the outside world onto a blockchain without um, risking that, that it's going to be compromised or that it would be easily compromised. So these are these are complicated games that I don't think we have easy or, or clean or proven solutions to yet. And before we have those, those proven solutions, decentralizing right out of the gate is probably asking for more trouble than, than the benefit that you get. I mean, you could imagine you ship a half-baked set of rules into a smart contract that then lives permanently on chain and then you discover all sorts of bugs and exploits that people take advantage of and people will take advantage of them when they do find them. And then you probably would have been, you probably would have been dealing with a safer system had there been some level of control in the early days. So I think that's okay. 
but eventually it won't be okay. No, that, that's good caller. I definitely agree that you should, the path from centralized to decentralized with safety is better than the reverse where you're launching something that isn't safe and hoping to centralize eventually, especially when, when money is involved. And Alex, one of your other points is that, and I saw this kind of in your, your blockchain capital's outlook for 2020 is that kind of the idea of vertical competition, right? So there's a bunch of new layer ones launching. We've covered them at Delphi. There's, they're very well funded, large valuations. What's your take on competition between chains, especially when it comes to something like DeFi? Do you think that DeFi apps will move over to one of these new chains because they have better throughput or better assumptions or better tech? Like, How, how do you kind of view competition in the space? Yeah, I think that um, I think that with new chains, they're probably competing for the next leg of users, not the existing ones. I struggle to see all of the existing DeFi applications moving over to a new chain just because it offers higher throughput. At the end of the day, with DeFi, what's important is is probably the the integrity of the functioning of the smart contracts underneath, and core to that is having a really really secure base layer. So we have a bunch of new chains that are now shipping cheap block space, essentially, but that there's a cost associated with, with cheap block space out of the gate, and you're taking a significant risk, I think, in terms of, of security and the future of the chain. So at this point, I think Ethereum has a pretty good case to make for itself as the most secure smart contract platform that has a, a fairly robust set of tools to actually build on. And that's another point. I mean, the, the entire infrastructure that all of these are built on needs to be sort of, I think, rebuilt in, in other environments as well for those chains to be able to successfully compete with Ethereum. So that that's another moat that technical constraints aside, um, is going to be a difficult thing to overcome for new chains. That being said, the number of smart contract developers today is, if I had to ballpark it, my guess would probably be 30,000 approximately. So this is a drop in the bucket of overall developers that you could consider your addressable market if you're, if you're shipping a, a smart contract chain. So I think that, that the new protocols are probably going to try and create better user experiences out of the gate that, um, that sell, to, um, sell to that next leg of, of developers that, that may be interested in smart contract development. No, that's fair. I definitely agree with that. And I guess the other thing is kind of hindsight, right? Like if we're thinking back to when Ethereum came around, it kind of had a market fit with being able to do things that Bitcoin couldn't do, right? Like smart contracts, you know, slightly higher throughput, things like that. But with the new chains launching, competing with Ethereum, I'm trying, I'm struggling to figure out like what that actual next leg is. Do you think that we have to know that next leg now, or do you think it's something that's going to come out of nowhere? I'm just trying to figure out what niche they're going to actually fill. Cause I agree with you. Competition is tough. Yeah. So I think that for, for things that are inherently high value per transaction. So I, th- I think I would lump financial services in here, trading, dealing with things where you really want to know that the, the ground under your feet isn't going to move or that the base layer chain will be relatively secure. There's a degree of latency that is permissible in my view. So going to get a mortgage or a loan at a fintech lender or something like that is going to end up, or a bank, is going to end up taking you quite a while um, to, to get onboarded, fill out paperwork, and then actually get approval. 
Um, and so, so I think if it takes you a couple of minutes and you have to wait for, for a block, um, a couple of minutes on Ethereum, that's really totally fine as far as those use cases go. And I don't see higher transactions per second being a meaningful enough reason to switch to another chain for financial use cases and things where what you really need is just secure a secure settlement court, essentially. Where those chains might have an advantage is for things, I think, outside of, of high-value use cases. So things in perhaps gaming comes to mind as one where you probably don't need the same level of security to safeguard your CryptoKitty as you do to safeguard your CDP in Maker, for instance. So those games are probably best suited for a chain with with uh, different types of, of security trade-offs and, and uh, throughput trade-offs. Hey, everyone. We'll continue this conversation shortly. But first, a quick word from our amazing sponsors. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets but don't know where to start building your portfolio? We have the answer for you. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at b.tc slash eToro reaction, linked in the show notes below. Now, that's fair. And just switching gears a little, Alex, one thing we talked about offline was that the new business models you're seeing that are coming to fruition given DeFi, right? So it's kind of like new ways people can start and own and kind of control new types of projects. What are your thoughts here on the new business models that are popping up in, I guess, the DeFi space and I guess just crypto overall? Yeah, I think there's some really interesting things going on here and, and particularly as they relate to tokens in those systems. So some of the tokens that I've found to be fairly interesting, they first of all, they they sort of engage the users that that they're not just investors or it blurs the line really between users and investors in a way that sort of aligns more or less all the stakeholders in a given system. Um, but they do so in a way that they don't end up eroding the value that, that people have contributed to the system. So some of the most effective token models that I've seen so far include things like buy and burn mechanisms that also confer maybe voting rights that, that kind of feel like a pseudo equity something like an MKR would fit into that bucket or something that that outright gives dividends. And that that's probably a controversial thing to say because we're all trying to avoid being securities here. But I do think that those tokens make the most sense from a value accrual perspective. And if your token doesn't accrue value, it's going to be really hard long-term to align incentives within your ecosystem. No one's going to want to hold it. So the most attractive tokens are going to attract people to use it for reasons other than the service itself. So they might they might be attracted to, let's say you're, you want to use prediction markets and you want to trade on them. Well, all of a sudden you want to earn a little bit on the side or get some benefits within that system. And so you acquire a little bit of a rep stake. And the, the, to the extent to which you then serve as an as a, a voter in arbitration on on the Augur Oracle, you end up getting what something that, that kind of looks like a dividend, or you at least you can earn more on top of your rep stake. It functions kind of like a work token in that manner. 
And that I think is, is a really nice evolution from just being someone who pays into the system. You can actually work for the system as well. And that, that sort of new gig economy there is, is very interesting to me and, and something that I think is, is, is new and that crypto has, has delivered in a, in a unique way. No, that's super interesting. I mean, the other example that comes to mind is synthetics. I mean, I own some and it's kind of cool because if you own SNX and you mint SUSD, you could collect staking rewards and exchange rewards. So the token holders kind of actually have a use case for the token like that. I mean, are you kind of seeing new projects where in 2016, 2017, it was, you know, launch a token and raise a bunch of money. But now what you're saying is you're seeing the tokens come out that actually have a use case beyond just raising money. Yeah, I, I would I would say that that's generally true. I think people have converged on a couple of of token models that seem to be working. I mean, definitely taking some some notes from um, from things like like MKR that has done quite well over the last year or two. Um, synthetics is a really interesting example that you bring up. I'm I'm actually curious what your thoughts are in regards to using a native token that's very new and somewhat illiquid as collateral behind synthetic derivatives, which is, which is, I believe, what the SNX token's core function is in, in that system. Um, and then they have a really high collateralization ratio to make up for, I guess, the expected volatility. I saw recently, so that's, that's worked quite well, I think, in engaging a core set of, of traders to use SNX and trade on it. But then in the last month, I've seen the price drop from something like $1.5 per SNX to, I think it went as low as 90 cents or so today, which is a fairly aggressive drop in what's collateralizing your entire system. So would be would be curious to hear your thoughts on that use as collateral versus using something like ETH instead. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, there's a couple of reasons why I think they're using kind of their own token, but one of the things is that, to your point, it is very illiquid, right? So the project is still small, it's young. So the price moved from 10 or 15 cents a couple months ago, all the way up to $1.50, now back down to around 90 cents. So it's definitely volatile. But there is some game theory in there on kind of supporting the system. And without going too much into depth, I mean, if your collateralization ratio, which is very high, which is great for the system, drops below... Um, the correct ratio, you can no longer collect rewards. So it kind of pushes users to uh, better their collateralization ratios, and that kind of helps the token economy a bit. And if not, the rewards just go to the other users. So definitely volatile, but I do think that by using their own token, they were really able to bootstrap the system well. And I don't know if they would be able to do that with a different token because they kind of be able, they have to be able to control the issuance and the governance, and it has very high issuance in the first couple of years just because of that. So definitely interesting. But to your point, there are concerns that we have uh, with the platform, of course. Yeah, I, no, I give them a lot of credit. I think they used that token really well to to engage an early user base. And it seems to have paid off really nicely for them so far. We'll see how it goes. I understand that they're introducing ETH also as a collateral type at some point, which I think is a really good move. But then that puts into question the utility of, of their own token going forward once that is presumably people's preferred type of collateral for those things. This actually segues into something else that, that I've been thinking about recently, which is the, the I guess the, the biggest metric that people look at in DeFi to, um, to measure 
progress and, and success is, to my knowledge, the value locked in DeFi. And DeFi Pulse sticks out as probably the leading provider of that metric. And if you look at it right now, it's at about 700 million up half a billion on the year, more or less. But that includes things like SNX as collateral. And that makes me question, you know, if you took the, I think SNX has an 150 million or so market cap right now, which is included in that figure, um, but has 24 hour trading volume of maybe, maybe 2 million. I'm, I'm guessing here, kind of pulling these, these numbers off the top of my head, but I think it's somewhere around there. And so I wonder if you adjust that figure for liquidity, what the number looks like instead. Because we're all rallying around the 700 million number, but what if it's closer to 450 million once you adjust for liquidity of more or less illiquid tokens? Um, I no, still that's, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, it, it definitely is a bit misstated, right? Because given the collateralization ratio of 750%, if you have a certain amount of SNX, you can only, you could lock it up, sure, but you're only able to mint synthetic assets at a much lower value given that ratio. And I mean, there's other issues, right? Like Lightning Network is on DeFi Pulse and people quote the amount locked up, which is you know between five and 10 million depending on the month. But the number really doesn't matter. It's all about the throughput on the actual Lightning Network. So if I could, trans- if I could use $100 locked up to transfer it to you a million times, I don't really need a trillion dollars or $100 billion really locked up there. Right. Yeah. And, and I think another, another reason why that might not be the best metric to use going forward is let's say that we reach a state of the world where DeFi is as successful as possible. In that state of the world, we have probably a large amount of under collateralized loans, unsecured loans. And those loans actually wouldn't get captured by value locked in DeFi because it really only measures the collateral value. So I think some more interesting indicators would be like loans originated or trading volume on decentralized exchanges, for instance. No, that's interesting. When do you think we'll get to a point when we're using not more complex, but I guess more specific indicators? Because I mean, back on Wall Street, you always do, right? If you're in a specific sector, like let's say telecom, it's all about post-paying photo ads. Or if you're on the cloud, it's all about revenue growth and storage and all that stuff. I'm just wondering if the space is just too young now to do that or if people don't want to like run with complex metrics. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think the space is driven so heavily by memes. People tend to aggregate around the things that tell the story in the way that they'd like it to be told. And, um, and not all of the metrics will necessarily do that. I actually do think on the contrary that that things like loan originations are really strong and would probably be an even stronger metric to look at. So maybe we should start looking at something like that instead. The nice thing about value locked in these contracts is it's sort of uniform across all of the contracts and you get an indication of growth, even if it doesn't tell the complete story, regardless of what the specific type of the application is. So I think we'll probably move into more specific metrics when the industry is a little bit more built out. And when we have more than a few tens of thousands of users in these things, it probably doesn't make sense to do in-depth analysis that is specific to, say, synthetic derivatives until you have a bunch of different providers of synthetic derivatives that you could compare across. No, that's fair. And 
Alex, just zooming out on the DeFi space, I mean, obviously the growth has been phenomenal. Granted, we might be looking at metrics that might not be correct. But is your take that the space, the DeFi space is growing fast enough? Like, are you happy with the progress in 2019, the growth, the projects launched, um, efforts to actually decentralize these projects? Or do you think that the space is growing slower than you expected? I know it might be kind of a vague question. Yeah, I um, I go back and forth on that. Some some days I'm really excited, and other days I wish things would move a bit faster. I think um, I think a lot of these projects are really really ambitious in what they're trying to do, and everyone makes very optimistic projections in terms of when they're going to be able to ship something or when they're going to be able to solve a certain problem. And in reality, it generally takes two to three times as long as you expect initially, at least in this world, so far. So. I don't think it's it's odd that there aren't more users of these things. I'm a user of them every day myself, and the user experience is extremely lacking. I think it's getting better all the time, and I'm very optimistic about about the progress on the user experience front, but I do think that there's probably a couple steps required before it would make sense to roll these out to much larger user bases. And Alex, what's your take on Web3 apps that aren't DeFi apps? And I always go back and forth whether DeFi is part of Web3 or vice versa. Like, How do you feel about the non-financial use cases being built, which is kind of in that Web3 bucket? Sure. Yeah. No. So I, I guess I would think of this as kind of an attempt to rebuild the, the large networks that we use every single day, but in a decentralized manner so that... People don't have platform risk when building on them, and that so the values of those systems are aligned with the users um, that that are actually using them every day, rather than being specific to shareholders who really just want to extract profits at a certain point. I think when looking at what is going to work next in the space, the the way I think about it is kind of there are two big forces that really dictate that, and so on the one hand. There's the technical and social complexity of providing integrity in a meaningful way to a new rule set. The more complex the rules, the more difficult it's probably to do that in a decentralized and secure manner. And then on the other hand, we have the amount of unmet demand for a new or better service. And so given the the technical constraints of, of providing integrity required by definition a performance degradation. The application either needs to address a market that has really, really severe pain, or it needs to create a big market that hasn't been able to exist before. And I think that with a lot of the Web3 applications, at least now, if you're trying to say decentralize Facebook, Facebook has spent the past 15 years optimizing for user experience. So it's going to be really, really difficult to create a product that's actually good enough for people to switch, even if it does have fundamentally better values and is built on a more egalitarian infrastructure. I think that's not as as true in the financial realm. I think that there are some really big pain points there that are more easily addressable with the technology that's been built already today. And so we already have things like stable coins We have lending applications. We have early synthetic derivatives Um, and some insurance products as well. And so all of those things can kind of be combined 
you know, and I would add custody to that too and smart contract wallets. And so when a lot of these pieces are open source or they are easily accessible services that you could add to your stack, you have the pieces already required to create something like a global savings account that anyone with a smartphone and internet connection could access. And that, I think, is a really, really powerful value proposition, especially abroad. I mean, it's not as big of a deal in the U.S. or in a lot of the West, but in developing countries, for instance, maybe where where you don't have as much access to bank accounts. There's about 1.7 to 2 billion people in the world that for a variety of reasons, don't have access to bank accounts. Um, and a lot of those people, I think, would benefit a, a huge amount from having access to financial, just basic financial services, like like a basic bank account and maybe the ability to earn a little bit of interest. And that doesn't have to be a huge amount of interest. I think even, even a couple of, of percent um, on a synthetic dollar-denominated instrument would be a really powerful thing to export from crypto to the world. I really enjoy and like your framing there. It's the first time I've heard that, and I really like it because it really puts into perspective that banks are black box. There's so many issues in financial services that Web three or that DeFi addresses, but for the internet, Web three has a really hard time because what are they actually solving for? Yeah, no, I think I mean I think that's right. I think that there are some real reasons why you might might want to build these systems and why people would be better off using them. I think it's further out though. I think given the state of of blockchains today, we're programming for a degree of latency that just isn't going to be acceptable in a lot of use cases. I think finance is one of the areas where um, where it actually is acceptable and where the tools are in place or going to be in place soon enough that you actually can build really useful products that solve um, big problems in large markets today or in the next three to five years, say. No, that's fair. And the other thing is that the existing Web2 companies are trying to break into the space a bit, right? Like Facebook has Calibra and its own stablecoin per se. I know they don't like to call it a stablecoin, but do you think that makes it even harder for Web3 apps to break into the space? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that Libra is addressing the money side a little bit more and addressing financial services. That to me isn't Facebook trying to rebuild itself from the ground up um, with a different incentive alignment structure. Um, but rather, that's Facebook trying to move into the financial services arena long term in the payments arena. I think that they have they're in a unique position with 2.4 billion or something like that users where a lot of those people have a Facebook account, maybe even think Facebook is the Internet, but don't have bank accounts. And so it's sort of a, a great opportunity for the largest social network in the world to enable greater financial inclusion of their user base. I actually think that that Facebook's move into the space is a big boon for crypto and will serve to normalize the concept of a, of a cryptocurrency to, to a lot of people. Whether or not you think Libra is a cryptocurrency or not, it has been called um, one and, and I think will, will really help introduce people to crypto wallets and that will inevitably bleed into other assets and other projects and and you know help help bootstrap some of the user bases of other things. Yeah, I definitely agree that 
Facebook is a huge, or Calibra and, and their stablecoin is a huge educational and hopefully monetary on-ramp for the world. And the other question I have for you though is when you're thinking about your framing, like DeFi is obviously low barriers given all the issues in the banking system. You know, let's create a decentralized exchange. Let's create lending, savings accounts, et cetera. It's pretty straightforward. They're solving an issue. With Web3, it seems like you need a giant cultural shift. Like you need the world to wake up one day and say, hey, I don't want Facebook to have my data or, hey, I'm tired of Google curating my life based on my search results. It just seems like the event that would drive people to a true Web3 is very high. Obviously, the value is at very high too if it happens. How do you kind of think about that potentially happening or if it will? Yeah, I would say that if it does happen, it's going to require a bit of a, a social revolution against those things. I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think people like to complain about Facebook and Google. And at the end of the day, they find a lot of utility and would probably prefer that those things exist versus not. I have, I'm not sure what my view is in terms of whether or not they're good for the world or for people, but I don't see them going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, no, I trust me, I'm massively bullish on all the innovation going on in DeFi and Web3, but I always like to zoom out a bit and say, if we can't convince 90% of the world to buy Bitcoin, how are we ever going to convince them to get rid of Facebook? Yeah, I definitely think it's a it's a much more difficult problem. And I view it as something that if it does get solved from crypto, will probably be decades away. No, for sure. And Alex, one of the last topics I wanted to cover with you is security tokens. Um, there's obviously a lot of providers out there, Harbor, Polymath, Tokensoft, Securitize, take your pick on where they fit on the stack. Um, and I feel like it, they were all the rage a couple of years ago, or not a couple of years ago, but maybe last year, and they've since kind of faded off. We talked online and you have kind of other views here. I'm wondering how you view security tokens. Yeah. So, I mean, without a doubt, I think that there is, it's been slow for security tokens. I also think that's very understandable. A lot of people approach security tokens and, and say, that's, that's not that interesting. It's really nothing new. And I, I kind of take issue with that. I think the first crop of security tokens out there are just securities that you might find on a stock exchange that have been wrapped in a token. And that is very much like putting radio on the internet. It's not at all like YouTube. But I do think that security tokens have some really interesting potential that is largely unexplored so far and potentially allow us to redefine the, what it means to own something in, in the digital age and what ownership of a company um, can actually look like. So, I mean, the, the, the first benefits for security tokens that, that come to mind are an expansion of access, rapid settlement, increased liquidity for private securities. A big one is automated compliance. But I think we start to get much more interesting in this space when we start talking about asset interoperability and uh, the programmability of security tokens. So essentially, an expansion of the design space for the types of security contracts that we can create. The Stephen McKeon is someone who's written some really interesting things on, on security tokens, but some of the examples of things that you might be able to do if you have your, your equity or you know, whatever, whatever that ends up being called on a, on a blockchain is you could have things like, like tenured voting. Instead of creating a special share class for 
to confer greater voting rights to some portion of, of your uh, capital structure, you could instead say, well, if you have held the token or have held the share for X amount of years, you get more voting power than, say, an activist investor who just bought it right now for the sake of gaining voting power. You could also do some really interesting things with cross-asset referencing. So this is an example from Stephen McKeon, actually. And the example that he he used in an article was instead of foreclosing on a house in a in a default on a mortgage, maybe a fraction of the house would be automatically paid to the creditor. And so there could be massive efficiency gains if that could happen automatically and you could actually keep your house probably or continue to live in it for, for longer. And so I think that would be something that would be a massive product with huge potential for not only economic optimization, but also for the benefit of, of people that have mortgages, which is a lot of people. Alex, those are great examples that I haven't heard before. I feel like a lot in the security token space, a lot of the people are focused on like tokenizing real estate or something. But a lot of the examples you brought up kind of in the beginning, I know you brought real estate up at the end, are for like, why aren't people doing security tokens for ownership of companies and stocks and bonds? Like, why is everybody focused on trying to securitize random things? Like, I'm just wondering when the security token space just targets Wall Street and reinvents it versus dancing around because the features they can offer are obviously huge. Yeah, I just think it's not it's not that great of a way to raise money right now. People don't really want to deal with them. They want they want their securities to look like other securities and to fit into the same infrastructure that those securities live on. So it's a bit of a network effect problem and a, and a chicken and egg cold start uh, problem with security tokens. I mean, a lot of the benefits that people tout with them, such as liquidity, that only occurs if there's a market for those security tokens. And if you look at the security token exchanges today, volume is is fairly limited. It's growing, but it's limited, and it's definitely going to require it's going to require a lot of development. I think that that the way that industry probably gets kicked off is not with mass tokenization of existing securities. It's probably not putting radio on the internet that that makes these things work, but it's tokenizing things that that just weren't tradable before. before. So private securities, things like, like limited partner shares in a venture fund, for instance, or I think real estate is a good example, but then also things that would be unique to crypto. So a lot of the tokens that are out there, especially things that that emulate dividends or have a mechanism that does that uh, built in, those might be looked upon as securities by regulators. And then in that case, they'll, they'll probably have to be registered and they might have to be securities for part of their life cycle. And demand for those new and interesting assets that power some cool crypto system, um, that might be a driver of demand for security tokens. And I think that until that flywheel kicks off, it's going to be very difficult to generate the demand side for for investment in these things. No, that's huge. And Alex, my last question for you, it seems like smaller projects in the space, say security token companies have to butt up against the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and the behemoths You know, will try and add features, but there comes a point when they're too big to kind of innovate and then the new breed kind of takes over. Do you see security token companies butting up against the giants in the space today, or do you think that they'll work together or do you think that eventually they'll be displaced? 
I think they're going to work together for the next 10 years, probably at least, and maybe maybe far further into the future. I mean, there does come a certain point where the change that you're proposing as a startup with some new technology is just structurally not going to fly with a, a larger institution that has processes and relationships built out already around around their existing business model. So there, there probably does come a point where that isn't additive anymore and is is destructive and they can't move fast enough to actually rebuild their entire structure to, to do something new. But in the near term, I think a lot of security token companies will probably build infrastructure that just helps those larger institutions either optimize their backends or provide um, support for, for new assets that, um, that live on blockchains. That's huge. Alex, this has been an awesome and a really fun conversation on Web3, DeFi, and security tokens. I really appreciate your time. And just let people know where they could follow you and learn more about Blockchain Cap. Yeah, absolutely. You can check out our website. It's blockchain.capital. And you can follow me on Twitter at Alex Larson. I spell it kind of funky. It's A-L-E-K-S-L-A-R-S-E-N. But yeah, Tom, thanks so much for having me, having me on the podcast. This was a pleasure. Yeah, man, this was fun. I like that you kind of got to ask some questions too. It was, a, it was a blast. Until next time. All right, take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.